0: All right, let's, it's 8.30, really with the, you know, we'll have entered the promised land when we start, when we stop at nine. So I'll see if I can get you there tonight. So free me, Lord, amen. So this has been interesting as we've gone now. This is the ninth time we've been together. Uh, You know, we aren't really where I thought we would be. So that's interesting. I thought I would spend much more time on troubles, but I've ended up spending much more time on uh, possibilities, on hopeful things, which is probably in the end good because there's no end to troubles. And so, even with this little prayer about free me, Lord, you know, there's all, all sorts of things. You know, I've, I've, um, more and more now as I, you know, grow older, the answer almost always turns out to be love because everything else is contained within it. And it is the basic definition God is love. And that doesn't mean just God is loving, but that He actually is love. And what we, what that will be like, we don't quite know. But um, sort of basic stuff. And so um, the question is, you know, why not give in to that? So this has been a bit where, and so and so the prayer then is is to uh, not only free us from worry. I tried to think about how how this could be expanded or if it should be. And then I left it just a couple of words. But really, if you if you think about to be freed from worry is to be freed from idols, which is to be freed from false loves. And I wonder if uh, while we can explain our anxiety or our worry or our fear if uh, as the result of all kinds of things that stimulate us or trigger us, um, in the end, you know, theologically, Uh, It's a matter of idolatry, and so that shouldn't be surprising because every sin breaks the first commandment, and we only ever really needed one. So uh, knowing that and knowing how high the stakes are, uh, I wonder if I could just start you with the notion that divine love is the gentle touch of holiness. I think one of the difficulties in the church is... um, how difficult we can be, and sometimes harsh, not only with people in the church, but with people outside. And uh, certainly, you know, sometimes it's deserved, sometimes it's not. But at least for tonight, think about divine love as this dead, gentle touch of holiness. Of course, if you saw holiness straight on, you know that would destroy us. But when holiness comes to us, In gentleness, for example, today is the feast day of the Annunciation. So Gabriel comes to Mary, and nine months from today, Jesus is born, right? One of the most celebrated feasts in the church. That is an act of gentleness all around. The angel comes to Mary. Mary gently receives him. She says, let it be unto me, and the history of the universe is changed. So in that gentle love that presents itself in the holiness of Christ, everything is changed. So we were playing around a little bit last week with holiness and blessedness and joy and happiness. I've been trying to think about that a bit more this week, but I'll just give you these summary statements that happiness... lives inside holiness and joy lives outside holiness. I've been trying to think about how to describe this. This may not be exhaustive, but if you think about a target, um, you know, there's some things that makes us make us happy. That's that are really horrible. I sort of gave you seventh grade recess or gossip as examples last week. Those things aren't really happy. Um, But the happiest things actually live inside holiness and joy erupts outside holiness. So if you start with holiness, um, You may or may not be happy, but joy is always possible. So I always think in a straight line. I try to think in a straight line or I try to think in a linear way. But if you think about it this way, that the gentle touch of love bestows holiness, which is to say it bestows blessing or blessedness, this notion of being blessed. And we read about Psalm 1 last week. And that then automatically bestows joy so i think it was last week that uh the notion of uh, you know polycarp saying he goes to the flames and says you know i could never renounce jesus he's been nothing but kind to me right so the joy of that even though um being burned at the stake is not really a happy occasion he went to it with both joy and hope and i wonder if we can start to think about that too So I give you then uh, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, 1 John 4. This is, uh, I should turn the page. So this is at the top of um, the second page. And there's actually this idea in 1 John 4 that uh, love actually expels or chases away anxiety. That's a very interesting idea. And of course, you should ask how that happens. But... We're not going to read the whole thing. In fact, we're going to spend quite a lot of time in just a verse or two. But you can see um, how this works, that everything boils down to the notion that God has come to us in the flesh of Christ. So it starts out by saying, hey, test, test spirits, sift life, right? It's this notion for finding out what's real. Test the spirits, and you'll know that it's true. You'll know that a spirit is true, but it talks about Christ coming in the flesh. And when Christ comes in the flesh, he's greater than anything else in the whole world. So God loves us. He makes the first move. He comes to us in Christ. Christ is greater than anything else in the world. And then this great notion that, just here in the middle, that God is love. So God in his nature is love. God in his nature is not wrath. We'd often prefer that because then our enemies would get what was coming to them. But no, God in his nature is love. And the Trinity lives in love. And the Trinity expresses love in creation, in salvation, in eternity. Um, God comes to us and loves us. And faith then agrees with that we believe the love that god has for us so jesus says i love you and we say you love me jesus says i'm for you not against you and we reply you're for me not against me and then um jesus says hey come live with me god is love and whoever abides in him abides in god and god abides in him so um jesus says to us you know come live with me and we say that would be fabulous and that gives us confidence, or that gives us hope for the future. So I've given you this notion of hope as welcoming the future. Now, all of that was just a preamble just to this single verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You know, I read this, and I think, you know, how does this work, right? How does this work? How does, how does love cast out fear? Or as I've put it, you know, here it's this simple, number three, divine love destroys fear. Now, if that's true, our lives are then the constant search for divine love, the constant touch of divine love, the constant um, embrace of divine love. So let's take it in little pieces, right? Uh, Just verse 18 There is no fear in love. Now, you remember, that's one of Jesus' favorite phrases. So he uses that when he goes and Jairus' daughter has died and Jesus comes and says, no fear. Uh, No phobos. Or he uh, walks on the water and Jesus says to the disciples as he approaches the boat, no fear. Or on transfiguration, we went through this with the icon, no fear. Uh, he says this to Mary Magdalene in the garden, no fear. And the angels at the empty tomb, no fear. And by fear, uh, this word we're used to this We It's phobos, but we get phobia from that. Um, no fear. And it has these, you know, it's like English. One word can mean many things, but kind of these expanding and increasing. So fear can mean panic and terror, uh, and especially the kind that makes us feel inadequate or unprotected. Now you see how this gets to anxiety and worry and fear all bundled up together. So when Jesus says no Phobos, he's talking about all these things. He's talking about worry. He's talking about anxiety. He's talking about fear and it makes us uh, feel unprotected and intimidated. And it, prompts us to dread what's coming next. So we're afraid of what's coming next and we want to run away or pull back from people. We pull back from enemies. We run away. So uh, this very interesting thing that Jesus says, there's no fear in love. And of course, love is this, you know, brilliant word agape, which means uh, now there's, there's some subtleties here. It means what you prefer or what you have an affection for. So you should think to yourself that what God prefers is you, which really makes anxiety and worry and fear quite irrational and even silly. That doesn't mean we don't have it. It just means in our best moments, we recognize that if God is for us, who can be against us? If what God loves is you, that's his disposition. When he wakes up in the morning, the first thing that God thinks is, I love you, right? You're the one I love. That's God's disposition toward us. Um, it's really quite nice. But I'm sorry for the uh, little miss here on the formatting the greek is actually a little bit more graphic it's actually if you were more literal you'd say um not there's no fear in love but there's no fear inside love and i'm sort of visual when i, I think about things i like to draw it makes sense when i draw it's when i think about it visually but there's no fear inside love this is a, a location there's no fear inside or in the realm of love or in the state of love or in the house of love so love turns out to be a place where we live you know it's it's the territory where we stay it's the house where we stay or if you will for the church it's the body of christ so you could you could say you know all things considered there's no fear inside the church there's no fear inside baptism there's no fear inside the eucharist there's no fear inside Absolution. There's nothing to be afraid of. But it gets even stronger because love becomes a place where fear is not welcome. Right? So I I often think about this when we use incense at the altar. You know, there's a simple reason to use incense. Jesus loves it, the devil hates it. Right? I think about the same way in our prayers Jesus loves it, the devil hates it. That is the way that love is expelling what is evil, is expelling, right? Chasing away what is worrisome or troublesome or anxious. So there is no fear inside love. And then the rest of verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. So perfect is the word for, you know, an Olympic champion going across the line. Or it's it's the word for um, a prophecy being fulfilled. It's teleos, like telescope, right? It comes, you know, uh, if you think about a telescope, a pirate's telescope that keeps going out until everything is clearly seen. So perfect love, grown-up love, complete love, casts out. And this is actually kind of a forceful word. It means it sort of pushes us to the side. So love makes fear uncomfortable love makes anxiety unwelcome now there's a whole range of ways to think about this we can think about how God loves us we can also think about our relationships with other persons whether or not the way that we welcome people and the way that we love them makes them feel warm and safe and dry so for that of course you know I tell you a little story and you remember the story, um, you know, how is it that love chases away our troubles? Um, think about it this way. I wonder if you could think about Jesus squeezing the anxiety out of you with uh, a hug and a kiss. I don't know if you can remember when you were a child and you were really hurt or you did something very wrong, or even when you're older and you've had a big loss and uh you're just undone by that. it seems like the trouble won't stop and over the last year, I know many of you have had uh deep wounds and How is it that something as gentle as divine will help you? Well, Jesus tells you know all sorts of stories about that, and you know if you if you only had this story i mean there are two or three stories if you if you had two or three of the stories. All the other stories are bundled up and then One is the woman caught in adultery, which is a genius story. Um, who condemns you? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But then there's a story about a boy who won't surrender to his father's love. And you remember, it's the story of the prodigal son. So a boy says to his father, drop dead. And the father loves him so much that he does. And he gives him everything that the boy should have and then more. And, of course, um, because the boy has made himself an idol, he ruins it all. And he goes away and everything is broken. And he decides to go home, but not as a son, as a servant. And he'll make a deal with his father. You know, I'll work as a servant. At least I'll have a place to live. Um, I'll, I'll have something to eat. And then this beautiful, you know, Luke 15, 20, this beautiful verse. And the prodigal son rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So we've been through this together before, but you remember this. Um, this man is clearly someone in the village. He's an important man. And when his son left him, his son humiliated him. And the whole village would have said, good riddance. And now when the boy comes back, he's not safe. In fact, they think he was better off dead. But his father, who seems to be looking for him every day, raises his eyes and sees him. And then this great biblical word, he felt compassion. Everything inside him warmed up. His heart softened and he ran. And of course, in the scriptures, in the Middle, in the middle East, in the ancient Middle East, old men don't run. Uh, running is for children or servants. So he ran to him. He humbles himself again. He ran to him and he hugged him. And he kissed him. That's the story of next week. That's the story of Holy Week. Jesus sees us. His heart melts. He runs to us. He embraces us. He kisses us. And when he does that, you know, he wraps us up and protects us. And he restores us. And he elevates us. That story when he says bring him a robe and bring him a ring and bring him shoes and he's my son the rest of the community would kill him if he had the chance but no because the father elevates him loves him back into being a son Um, that boy's fear melts away all the threats have been removed and later, I mean, we'll get there, I think. Uh, in this chapter, at least, the reason we're afraid is because we feel threatened. At least that's how First John 4 puts it. But look how in this story, the love of the Father not only elevates the Son... But also removes any future threat, and when there's nobody against him, then the man the, the son can live in peace, he can live in hope again, so love has you know such a weightiness, so much gravitas, it's so heavy that it that it threatens evil, that it displaces worry, that it chases away anxiety. Um, It's this wonderful thing that we can be saved by a hug and a kiss. Um, The interesting thing about the church is that Jesus always lets us play. And so, of course, the gifts you get are never just for you. Holiness and blessing and joy and even happiness are not just for you. Jesus gives them to you and then the gifts overflow and they're meant to be for other people too. You know, this is such a simple narrative, but it strikes me uh, how healing this would be in America right now, if we could remember this and how, you know, the future would look much, much brighter so um Jesus lets us love our neighbor and our love becomes their antidote. So Jesus loves us into joy. He elevates, he protects us. We love the next person. We elevate and protect them. And they elevate and protect the next person. And suddenly you have this wonderful, fearless community. And that's reflected um, in the New Testament and we pass over this so often, but it's reflected in the Eucharistic kiss. Romans 1 Corinthians, first, Thessalonians, 1st Peter, they all end with, and it's very interesting, greet one another with the holy kiss. And of course, you know, we sort of say, peace be with you and also with you. Sometimes we shake hands, but of course, what we're really meant to do is to kiss each other. Um, and it would be better if, probably, if that actually happened. It's much more intimate and uh, demands much more of us. And um, the closer you get to people, the harder it is to hate them, right? The more you know. But we have this possibility of squeezing the anxiety about other people. Of course, you know, this is what Jesus does to us. We're unlovable, but he loves us. And when he loves us, someone loves us, and I become lovable. And it's the same thing for you. Now, yeah, this was here. So, um, if you're still in fear, why is that? Because fear has to do with punishment. This is the quote, you know, not me. This is, the, this is the rest of verse 18. Perfect love casts out fear, right? Fear has to do with punishment, And it's interesting um, how this, all the things again, contained in this word. It can mean to be deprived of something. It can mean to be beaten up. It can mean to be tortured, but it's interesting. It especially means to lose your future, to dread the future. It's very interesting because we started with hope means welcoming the future and fear or punishment means now to dread the future. And what happens next week in Holy Week is that the Lord opens the future for you. On Good Friday, everything is forgiven, and on 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 Easter, you learn what that means as Jesus leads you home. And this glorious story of Emmaus, where he warms their hearts so that they can understand uh, the law and the prophets. And they celebrate the Eucharist, and they can't wait to relieve the anxiety of the disciples who are back in Jerusalem. So, um, you know, this basic thing I've tried to give you, that fear is self-appealing, and then hope and joy are Christ-appealing. When we are anxious, when we worry, when we fear, it's because deep down, we know that we can't protect ourselves. We know that we can't heal ourselves. We know that we can't guarantee our future. There are people who do a tremendous job at this, right? There are some people who don't suffer much in this life. And, you know, the Psalms are full of this. Why, you know, why did the wicked prosper? Or there are people who insulate themselves or seem to be able to get out of every jam through, you know, money or influence or some other way, you know? But the bottom line is that people still die. Now, in our you know, current time, we've embraced the notion that um, that's the end of it, then. If we, uh, you know, if we die, the lights go out and that's it. That's a very poor understanding of time. Uh, What really happens is we come before the face of God and uh, we get what we'd always hoped for. It's a full healing and a full protection and a full peace and a full happiness and blessedness. And this is why um, you needn't fear your death. It is true that people fear dying, I think, but often Christians, and even Christians, you know, suffer um, some fear of dying. But of your death, yeah, it'll be tremendous. And people who love you should be with you you know, to uh, ease you on your way. So finally then, um, hope welcomes the future with joy. And that's uh, a direct result of love. Now, we've seen the progression. You know, love brings uh, blessing. And, you know, that blessing, you know, brings joy and sometimes happiness and hope. But this would mean that the cure for us is the constant touch of divine love. And by the way, all through this outline, you know, I've played with the capital letters, wherever there's a capital letter out of place, that's a divine act. So love, big L, is God's love for us, and hope, big H, is the hope that God bestows. Right? So what happens is, the more that we're touched by divine love, and then you see, suddenly... The more we re- we remember our baptism, the more we come to church, the more we're at the Holy Eucharist, the more we say our prayers and know that they're heard, the more this gentle love of God embraces us and kisses us and holds us dear. In my morning devotions, it was the psalm um, on 85, I think, where one translation says, it's the most beautiful line, justice and peace kiss. It's this glorious, I mean, it's this glorious idea of what life is meant to be, where justice and peace kiss. Everyone is satisfied. And this, of course, is why the church then is so important. If you work with the notion as uh, love is a place, it's extraordinarily important to have a robust, caring, tolerant, embracing, kissing, loving, forgiving congregation. And when the church doesn't grow or when a congregation doesn't grow, it's no mystery why not. It's because there's, it's loveless or the love is diminished. And people can get hate on the street. They don't need to come to a new place for that. So it's incumbent on us to bestow this blessing, bestow this joy on other people insofar as we are able. So our future is unending, unconditional love. That should have been a big L. So then two things to finish. You remember that we had Brother Emil of Tzeze here probably a decade ago. And uh, he quoted... um, Brother Robert from Tizay, divine joy is so large as to contain all our sorrow and still be joy. You can just um, play with that, but divine joy is so large as to contain all our sorrow and still be joy. And so this notion that we can have joy even in the midst of sorrow, we can have joy, joy can be the predominant affect even when we suffer. Divine joy is so large as to contain all our sorrow and still be joy. And then something from a book I haven't read for a while, but um, it's one of the most brilliant last pages of a novel I've ever read. Uh, Tobias Wolf, Old School. If you don't know it, I'll, you know, pull it out and read it sometime. But it's a, a, a little bit of a spoiler alert just to set this up. It's about a young, uh, poor boy who goes to prep school, goes to an Eastern prep school. And, Wants to be accepted and tries to compete, and he wants to be a writer. And he, the first prize in the writing contest every year, they have a famous author come. Hemingway is an, his is idol, and the year that he's writing, Hemingway is coming to be the judge. So he loses his nerve and he plagiarizes a story, and he wins but then he's found out before he meets Hemingway and he's called to the Dean's office, but the Dean isn't there. There are uh, two other men, the headmaster and a professor who expel him. So the end of his dream. But the interesting thing is that the Dean isn't there because he has misrepresented himself as a friend of Hemingway's his entire life and Kind of lived from the respect that that brought him and when he found out that this young man was going to be expelled um he resigned and he bounced around for a year or so um, meanwhile into the future this young boy becomes a writer and over the years he's invited back um, it's an act of redemption and so too then the end of this story, this is the last two paragraphs of the book. Um, the young boy is invited back and redeemed. And the dean, who um, was less than noble, uh, calls to beg for his job back. And remarkably, the headmaster has him back. So this these last two paragraphs, Arch, who is the who is the dean, you know, first name now. Uh, You find out his first name as you get get later in the book. He's always been the dean before. So he's been invited back. Arch heard them well before he got to the house. They were in the headmaster's garden, of course. They always gathered for drinks there before getting down to business. It sounded as if they'd been drinking, their voices loud, hilarious a blue haze of smoke hung over the garden. As he came in under the rose-colored trellis, someone yelled, Arch, et homo, and every head turned. Arch stopped and looked down the garden to where the headmaster stood by the drinks table with another master. The headmaster said, late for his own funeral, and everyone laughed. Then he put his glass down and came toward Arch, both hands outstretched. Though the headmaster was younger, was a younger man, the younger man, and much shorter, and though Arch was lame and had white hairs coming out of his ears and white stubble all over his face, he felt no more than a boy again. But a very well-versed boy who couldn't help thinking of the scene described by these words. Surely the most beautiful words ever written or said his father, when he saw him coming, ran to meet him. Free me, Lord. Amen. All right, there you go. 9.03. I thought this might be the night we'd make it, but not quite. So um, thanks for turning out. Uh, hang around to chat if you want. Uh, next week, of course, we're off for Monday, Thursday. Then I'll, I'll work on the schedule Um but just just pay attention to life together. I'll try to sort this out by uh, next week. We've got a few more times at least we can, we can meet. And then, you know, it's getting closer to summer than we all realize. All right. Love you all. Um, kind of think this through. If you have questions or other things you want to chat about, you know how to find me. But otherwise, um, thanks for turning out.